Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone, and welcome back yet again to another interview here at the Ludini Rock and Roll Circus. Uh, today, I am talking with the Reverend Sean Amos, son of Wally Amos of Famous Amos Cookies. Yes, you heard that right. And uh, uh, and Sean attributes uh, his diverse background uh, to uh, growing up in the colorful Hollywood landscape. Now, prior to becoming a blues preacher, uh, Sean was an A&R executive at Rhino Entertainment and vice president of A&R at Shout Factory, where he produced and recorded multiple Grammy-nominated projects. Uh, He produced broadcast DVD and audio titles for legacy artists ranging from Hart to Quincy Jones. And then uh, later ran List the Listen Up uh, Listen Up Foundation for uh, Quincy Jones. Um, Amos has released five albums of music, including his 2014 release, The Reverend Sean Amos Tells It, a collection of blues originals and covers that received much acclaim uh, from the Blues and Roots world, and the sophomore blues album, which I'm listening to right now, can't get enough of, uh, The Reverend Sean Amos Loves You. When not playing blues clubs, um, Sean hosts a weekly web series called The Kitchen Table Blues, and I highly recommend that you guys check that out. It is very, very cool. Uh, He's also known for his expertise in brand marketing, having founded Vanguard content marketing agency Freshwire. Amos speaks to the need for content mindfulness and authenticity in the 24-7 real-time race for relevancy. Welcome, Reverend Sean Amos. Thank you, Lou. Good to be here on a Sunday, <laughs> uh, Sunday morning. A Sunday morning. And wait a minute. Now, I hope I'm not like we're not messing you up because you you are actually an ordained reverend, right? I am. I'm with the the Universal Life Church. So the you know the the bar might not be as high as uh, you know being with the Catholic Church, but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm I'm actually officiating my first wedding uh, in uh, in November. I'm actually going to marry marry off my uh, my sister-in-law. You know, I was just going to ask you that. Like, so, so if somebody out there is like, you know, I want like a blues man to marry us, you know, they, can, they can call you up. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm, 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 right. I'm easy to, I'm easy to find. <laughs> yes, yes, you're everywhere, um, and uh, we'll just go ahead and just throw that at the folks right now, so they can follow along, follow along online. That's uh, SeanAmos.com, or at uh, Facebook, uh, Reverend Sean Amos, and Twitter, uh, Sean Amos. He's got a YouTube channel that's uh, YouTube.com backslash user backslash Sean Amos, so you can see all that stuff there. Um, now let's get into the meat and potatoes. Now, how did you get um, I didn't read the whole bio because that gives away the whole thing, and then there's no reason to do an interview. <laughs> but how did you How did you get started? You do have some music in your background, so tell us how you got started in music. Okay, I mean I've been around music my whole life. You know, my, my father was a, a music agent uh, back in the '60s over at William Morris, and he booked all the old Motown acts of the day and Solomon Burke and the Animals, and so uh, and, you know, it was just a part of my life. I grew up in you know, recording studios and, you know, backstages at clubs and concerts. 
my mother was a nightclub singer um, who performed under the name Shirley May. And so it, it's just always been a part of my life. You know, I, I, so I've always been a fan and a student of music, and music has been the thing, you know, above all else, that's just really, you know, kept me going um, and, and just sort of gave me a, an anchor in my life. Uh, I didn't start playing music myself till relatively late, and it, sort of, and it just grew out of writing. I've always been a writer. And as a kid, I wrote poems and short stories, and I um, went to film school at NYU and was, was thinking I wanted to get into screenwriting and actually wrote a few screenplays. And, and, I, and I got introduced to songwriting sort of around college, and I just loved that form of storytelling. You know? and, and I, I just love um, telling a story in a two- or three-minute song. And to me, it's the most powerful storytelling there is. And so that was sort of you know, the, the, the road I've always been on, and I've been I've, – written in different genres uh, and I you know, released a few albums that were sort of you know, typical folky singer-songwriter kind of albums and I made a record actually a tribute album to my mom which is the last full-length album I made. This album, The Reverend Sean Amos Loves You is my first full-length album of original material in 10 years. Okay. Uh, and so it's been a long while so I took a bit of a break from, from writing and recording. I produced some other folk show on the way but it's, it's, just, it's just the anchor of my life man. Yeah, and I feel like when I'm when I'm writing and certainly when I'm singing, that is the you know the most direct path I, I can get to my head and my heart. You know, I mean, everything else and everywhere else in life, I'm sort of you know kind of struggling what to say and how to say it, and you know sort of questioning you know my my sincerity or my motives. But when I'm when I'm in music, it is you know, there's just you know there's no question. There's no question. Um, now you you sort of touched on this a little bit. Now you've worn a lot of hats in this business. Um, how, is there an adjustment where you're? I mean, like, what do you have to do? Like, how do you get yourself in the mindset to going from like either a producer or an A and R person to being an artist yourself? Yeah, it, that's yeah, that's, that's a great question. I I um the challenge for me as an artist has always been to just let the artist lead. Um, I think for anyone who you know has who wears multiple hats, or for anyone who is um, you know, it's a really independent musician because you know, we live in a world now where every musician really needs to be his own manager and his own social media person and his own you know best advocate and and, and be somewhat of a business minded you know person to some degree. And I think that maybe some artists even maybe over over calibrate in that area, um, but. I think that for, 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 for me, I'm always having to, when, when I'm in the moment of playing and singing, the big challenge for me is just to be a player and just be a singer and put all those other hats like outside of the room. Um, and that, that's tricky sometimes, you know, versus when I'm producing or working with someone else, I think my obligation is to, is to be with um, – to do with them and be service to them and provide some objectivity and maybe inject a little bit of of intellect into their artistry. Does that make sense? Right. It's like well, it's, it's like what part of your brain you know leads at any given time. You know, and I think that you know for me, I talked to someone else about this a couple of weeks ago. I, I think it's every artist's job when they're in the, the the act of creating to just you know put all those other hats away and just, you know, get in tune with the muse. And then once it's done and it's out there, whether it's out there on paper or out there on tape or out there on stage, you know, once it's captured, I guess, then whatever it's captured, then to think about what you do with it, you know, then think about how you sell it or think about how you introduce it to people or think about 
you know, what kind of package to wrap it up in. But I think if you're, if you're thinking about all that stuff while you're making it, then you end up with a piece of product that doesn't move people. You know, I think you know, people are ultimately moved by, you know, music that, that you know, clearly comes from a, from a, you know, a place of authenticity and comes from, from, comes from the heart. Not well, the speak, speaking of authenticity and heart, um, let's talk a little bit about the 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 the, the latest record. Now, the record actually the record is out, right? No, no, it's uh, October not yet. 16th. Yeah, October, October 16th. 16th. So you, uh, you, you can pre-order on iTunes, um, uh, but October 16th is the uh, is the release date. Okay, this is really exciting. Um, the this record has it, it's edgy. It, I mean, it's traditional. I mean, there's the, the, you're not. It's not. Um, it's not like disco blues or something like that. You know, it's it's it's, it's very. It's got very traditional sort of like uh, uh, anchor to it, but it's still like really like really edgy and really it rocks. I mean, I'm a rock guy, to to you know hardcore rock guy, and this is just like I loved how it was so soulful and so traditional, yet it really rocked. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about how? Um, Reverend Sean Amos loves you is a little bit different than, than some of the other things you've done. Yeah, I think you know. I, so it's the second blues album I've made, and, and the first full length, and the, and the first one of you know largely original material. There's there's 12 songs in the album, and, and 10 of them are originals. Um, and I, I think you know when I did the EP, I mean, when I did the EP last year, I just really wanted to you know be a student of the kind of blues that really speaks to me which is largely you know Chicago era you know post world war 2 blues so you know Elmore James and and, and Muddy and, and and Junior Wells and Howlin' Wolf and you know the chess team that, that that's really the the era of blues that I, I just find really vibrant and really exciting and I feel that of all the different strains of blues that's the one that's kind of been lost the most you know that whole scene sort of you know evolved into a bit of a horn thing and yeah, and it got a little, you know, showboaty in a way, and then you know the Texas guitar slinger thing, and the, and the, the British sort of reinterpretation of blues. I feel there's, there's a lot of other strains of blues that sort of have, have endured and sort of captured public fascination more than the Chicago stuff. And, and, I, and I'm so I guess I'm on a little bit of a mission to sort of you know shed a spotlight on, on that era again. So that first album was sort of that. It was just, it was just a celebration of that kind of music and its little covers. I think for, for this album. It was really important for me. You know, I was, I was writing original material, right? So, so, the, so, so there's less of a rule book to point to. If I want to cover a Junior Wells song, well, you know, there's lots of recordings to point to. And if I'm going to be reverential, then those are pretty easy decisions to make. But when you have a bunch of new material, you know, where are the guardrails? And, and I think for me, one of the things I talked about with Mindy, the bear who, who produced the album for me, was, you know, what if those guys were making an album today, you know? Um, you know, so instead of trying to recreate you know some 1960s Chicago vibe, you know, what if those guys were around today and making a record? And what 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 would it sound like with the sensibilities that they have? And so that was sort of, I guess, if any sort of guidepost, it, it was that one. You know, that we it should, you know, we didn't hear anything too slick because none of those albums that they made were slick by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they're all, you know, there's some warts on those records and the parts weren't played perfectly, and that wasn't the point. You know, it wasn't slick. You know, a lot of blues has gotten really produced and really slick and, and really somehow people get obsessed with sort of, you know, perfect execution. Um, and I, I think it's about, you know, hearing the interplay between people and, and hearing, you know, maybe a beat get skipped or anything's rushed in the verse and then dial back and the, those dynamics, that push and pull is, is probably what's cool about those old records. And so um, 
you know, that, that was the goal. You know, it's like, you know, let's, let's create um, an environment where that feels like, you know, a sort of 21st century version, you know, of a Chicago blues, you know, record. Um, and, I, and, I, and it feels like we got it. It feels like we got it. Yeah, mission accomplished for sure. Um, now, speaking of creating that vibe, now, you guys, how did you do this? You did. You guys all played together in in a room. Yeah. Is, is, is this how you did it? Yeah, we were recorded down in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, at the studio of Brady Blade. Uh, Brady's got a studio down there. Brady's a great drummer. Comes from a great drumming family. Um, he's you know played with Anders Osborne and North Mississippi All Stars, and you know all the way to you know on one side Jimmy Lou Harris and Indigo Girls and the other. So he's got a great you know and he's, and he's from Shreveport, and there's something about the air in Shreveport where people just play in a really <laughs> gr- gr- in a really greasy way. And so, uh, so he and uh, Chris Thomas uh, were on rhythm, and then, um, and then my my longtime guitarist, uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, flew in from LA with me, and then we used a couple different keyboard players. But yeah, they, we, everything was live except for horns, which we overdubbed, and except for uh, some background vocals by a local Streetport uh, singing group called Forever Jones. Um, but everything else is live. I think, and I may have recorded one harmonica overdub, but all the other harmonicas were, were live. So. Um, it was great. I mean, so what you hear is what you get. You hear the room, you hear the interplay. You know, there was a very, you know, there wasn't a ton of punching. I don't think he punched much at all. Um, I, have, you know, I have to say that I was surprised to see Mindy Abair's uh, name involved with this. Um, can you ex- tell us uh, a little bit how you got, how she became involved with the project? Tell me why you were surprised first. <laughs> because, like, I know, I know Mindy, in my mind, Mindy's a totally, like, pop artist you know what i yeah. mean i don't really think of her in uh in in as roots in, in as a roots type artist at all and so and then when i heard your record i was like oh my goodness this is brilliant <laughs> i want to yeah. my record <laughs> <laughs> cool yeah yeah that was a that was a that was a calculated risk so mindy and i are really good friends we were both on the grammy board uh, together in los angeles and we met uh, towards the end of my term on the board and at the beginning of hers um, and we just, we struck up a friendship and dug each other. And right before I, I started playing, uh, I got invited to go to Italy to play the blues in 2013. It was where this whole thing kind of began uh, by some old bandmates. And so right before I left to go there, I was thinking about picking up saxophone again, which I played years ago and thought I might want to pick it up again. And so my goal when I went to Italy was like, oh, maybe I'll play like two solos. You know, I'll, I'll get my chops back enough to pull off two solos convincingly. And so I reached out to Mindy to see if she gave me a sax lesson. <laughs> and um, and so okay. we went. I went to her place, and we were rapping. And, and she was, you know, we're sort of we realized we were going through kind of the same thing. Where I was being, you know, drawn into this blue space, which I'd been a student of and had been around. And I'd you know, produced other blue things, both you know, compilations and both some, you know, some albums. And, and and at the same time, she was trying to get away from that pop world that you spoke of into a more sort of rootsier world. She just began playing with the Bone Shakers and Sweepy Atkinson, uh, and and she was trying to figure out how to just sort of you know, she wanted to explore that space and wanted to be taken seriously in that space. So, and I went to Italy, I came back, decided to diss the saxophone and said, pick up the harmonica. <laughs> and, um, and, so, and, we, and, and we kept in touch. And then when I had all these songs, my father had her albums with the songs written, I thought, you know what? It'd be really cool to have her produce. Yeah, and, and, and the calculation was sort of, you know, I, I knew it was a risk in a sense that, you know, that there's a lot of, you know, um, the blues community is very gracious, and the blues community is very supportive of one another. I, I, and I've never been in a musical community before that's been as, you know, supportive and sort of, you know, keeps their own up as the blues one. But it's insular, you know, and I, and I think that there's a lot of, like any music community, there's a lot of preconceived notions about, you know, who has sort of, you know, the right to play this music or who does it with authenticity or credibility or right. whatever. And I, and I knew that some would look at 
Mindy's name, if they knew who she was, I mean, somebody didn't know who she was at all, but they knew who she was, it, it would raise a little bit of suspicion, perhaps, you know, with certain people. Um, but I kind of liked that also. And I thought, you know, it, 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 it's like, it felt like we both had something to prove. And, um, and I knew that her, her heart and her soul and her vibe, and she's from, you know, fucking Jacksonville, Florida, and she's, you know, she's growing up around all this kinds of music. And her, you know, tell you, a bear is her last name, which is a respelling of uh, uh, Herbert, her bear. And so she's, her, her, all her roots are sort of Creole kind of people from, from uh-huh, the okay. So, um, so she's got this music sort of in her, you know, and, and she's just as, you know, branded herself in a certain way over the years and been in a certain scene, and, and that's so what people know her, but she's so much more than that. So I thought, you know, if, if the, you know, the two of us are kind of improbable, and I kind of like the improbability aspect of it, and, and she can deliver. There's no doubt she can deliver. And it's funny even going down the street, because a lot of people didn't know about her. And, you know, she, you know, she's just blonde, you know, good-looking woman, you know, and, and people are going whatever. And she, she busts out her saxophone, and she's a monster. I mean, she's just a monster, monster player. And, uh, and you know, she's playing to Berkeley College of Music, and she's played with everyone under the sun. And she just has, above all else, in, incredible chops. And, um, and, and she wanted to support me. You know? And so I thought uh, it, it, was, it was a risk worth taking that people would ultimately, you know, give it a shot, put their sort of preconceived notions aside, and then realize that it sounds like you have. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, she's actually... There's something about her I didn't know. Just as you know, like, even with me, I think you know, I, I have a kind of non-traditional blues background, if there is such a thing. And, and, I, and I and I think that even you're reading my bio, part of me is like, oh God, you know, I, I always worry a little bit about people, you know, taking my intentions seriously and 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 knowing how much this music means to me, you know, despite the fact that I grew up in a sort of, you know, in some respects, in a non-traditional way that people might think. You know, who am I to be a blues musician or whatever? But you know, this this music is uh, it, it, it's it's sort of uh, it's made me understand my past and my heritage and my lineage, and it's made me get in touch with you know all the crap in my life, and it's made me also just want to celebrate in a way I've never been so you know non self conscious about. So anyway, it was, it, was a, it was a great it was a great marriage, and, and she's been a a great ally for me and a great supporter, and it's also nice. I mean, lastly, you know. I've always produced my own stuff, you know, or I've produced other people. And so just the act of asking someone else to produce me was a big deal. You know, and it's a big deal to sort of like go into a studio and just be the singer and just be the harmonica player. And obviously I'm saying these things, it's collaborative, but, you know, to not have to hold every detail on my shoulders really freed me up to be a different kind of singer and a different kind of player in the studio, which, which really comes across. And I, I've never, you know, made a record like this, aside from the genre, just because I, I just... I was allowed to, to just pour everything of my soul into it, not worry about whether I was the one who had to say cut, or whether I was the one who had to listen for whether you know the bass player missed it or not. That was someone else's job, and so I was just, <laughs> you know I was 100 percent in my 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 own space, and I've never had that before in the studio where I could just be 100 percent in my own space like that. It was a real gift that she gave me. Um, well, the the proof is in just cranking this thing up and listening to how amazing it sounds. So um, yeah, it it turned out absolutely fantastic. Um, so we talked a little bit about switching gears from being producing yourself, et cetera. Um, what do you, what would you say like a good, now you're, you've produced and, and now you've worked with Mindy. Uh, what, what's a good producer really bring to the project? Yeah. I th- one, they, they are providing you know, a, a safe environment, you know, for an artist to, you know, be their best self. Right. They're just providing a safe space. 
um, because you know, making record is a you know, it's a vulnerable kind of thing, you know, um, and you, you need to feel safe. <laughs> you need to feel that you've got you know people on your back who are going to encourage you uh, and, and and pull the best out of you uh, while 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 keeping you you know, encouraged. Um, so I think that's first and foremost. And, and then the other part is you know the, to create you know a scenario where you're just sonically going to sound your best. So you know the right players, uh, and the right studio, and the right engineer, and the right um, you know kind of setup. Uh, and then and then there's also this working. You know, Mindy works with me on the material. With it. You know, I had, I had some other songs where it's like, look, I don't think this is the right song for the record. And you know, and sort of how, being being a bit of an, an editor. You know, because a lot of times an artist you know, the best of them still, you know, lose objectivity. They get caught up in the weeds, right? And so yeah, someone, right. Who, someone who's got the sort of uh, the, 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 the gravitas, you know, and someone who the artist trusts enough to say, you know what, that, that's not it. You know, that, that song's not the best song. Or what if, you know, you rearranged it to do this? Or, you know, it's funny, we had, we had a solo on um, uh, Luther Dickinson for the North Mississippi All-Stars. Uh, originally played a solo on one of the songs in the album put together. And uh, and he played a killer solo, but it it just it just didn't feel like part of the album, you know. Um, and I wanted to hold on to it because Joe Dickinson from North Mississippi All Stars. Oh my God, uh, probably have my marketing hat, on, my, my marketing hat on more than my music hat on. Okay. Uh, and as Mindy's like, you know what? It's a great solo. It just sounds like it belongs on like an Almond Brothers record, not a Reverend Shawnee's record, you know. And so to have that, you know, that, that was kind of a tough conversation. Uh, and, but that's what a producer does. It's sort of you know, have tough conversations. It sort of keeps the big picture in mind and helps to sort of you know keep this thing on track and, and create create a product or create an album that is you know in keeping with what the artist wants, but hopefully even a better heightened heightened version of that. You know, I mean, I had this album in my head. You know, this album wouldn't sound as good you know without Mindy around. Without, you know, there's no way I could have sort of taken it as far on my own. You know, as, uh, as she did because of just the, the nature of collaboration and the nature of partnership and the nature of just having also someone else who just, you know, has, you know, different sensibilities and sort of, you know, chops to bring to the table. Uh, how did you end up, now the Blind Boys of Alabama are on this record, right? Am I correct? Yeah, they're on the first now, how, shot, how, so. uh, Okay, how did that, how did you get involved with those guys? I mean, you're, I you're involved with everybody because you're in the music business, but like, <laughs> Yeah, Talk about how like they came into the project. <laughs> we have a lot. We have a lot of mutual friends in common, you know. And I, I'd written that song "Days of Depression," which opens the album, and it's in some respects, you know, sort of the most old school, you know, song on the album. Uh, I mean, there's a Memphis mini cover, you know, from 1930, so that's old for sure. But in terms of the original, it's decidedly old school. It's almost like a chain gang, you know, kind of song. <laughs> right. And, uh, and and it's um, and I just had always heard a sort of gospel thing on it, you know. And I, I we did a demo. We demoed all these songs from Los Angeles. Which I, I self produced the demos. And the demos were good. It's actually funny. If you need any like proof of like what a producer brings to the table, it's like to hear any of my demos up against, you know, the final album. It's sort of an interesting exercise. But I and so I always heard a gospel thing and on the demo I had sort of overdubbed my own gospely kind of vocals, like call and response kind of stuff. And so I, I knew I wanted there is just, just who was it gonna be and I, and I just um and I heard um uh what the hell is it? One of one of the old uh, real world albums of theirs. I forget the title of it. But I, was, I was like just listening to the car one day. I'm like, oh my god, okay. of course them. <laughs> and I, and I just uh, started you know, calling a couple of mutual friends, how I could get to them, and I sent them the demo. And uh, you know, and and they, you know, I had a, I had an end because we had a mutual friend, so I was sort of like, you know, the way in. But I I, uh, I sent them the demo, and they said yes like the same day. 
um, which is a huge honor. And so, um, and that wasn't overdub too. So we, we couldn't uh, they tour a lot, and we couldn't get our schedules to align. Um, so so we went to them. Uh, actually, what were they? They're in New Hampshire on a tour stop. So we, we ran into a studio in New Hampshire and, and okay. did that. But uh, but uh, but yeah, super grateful to them. I mean, that was a huge, huge, just uh, you know, huge, a huge win. Those guys are. Yeah, no, this is a great marriage. It sounds fantastic. I uh, wanted to take a little wee bit of a step back. You mentioned a few times that you'd produced uh, other blues artists and been involved with uh, different blues compilations, et cetera, but you'd never really done You sort of came into blues a little bit later in your career. Could you tell us about your how you got into blues, being a blues singer? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I, I've, I discovered the blues as a fan, like towards, Later end of high school, beginning of college, uh, I went to the Long Beach Blues Festival in, in California. It's one of the pretty well-known blues festival. I saw John Lee Hooker, and uh, and, um, and and I just I sort of really got bitten by the music. And then I bought uh, this guy Peter Goralnik, uh, who's a great author. He wrote, he's written a series of books on Elvis Presley. But he wrote a blues trilogy, uh, uh, or, or a trilogy on Black American music. Uh, Feel like going home. Um, I said, Lost Highway, Feel Like Going Home, and Sweet Soul Music. It's, it's a great trilogy about sort of tracing black American music from early blues through, like, you know, 60s soul. And I read these books, and they just sort of educated me about my own history. You know, I knew, I knew painfully little about my own history as a black American male. And I grew up in a lot of white neighborhoods, and I, and I, and I went to white schools, and I, I had very little sort of, uh, you know, I had very little around me that looked like me as, as a kid, <laughs> as a young adult. And so these books, like, really introduced me to a part of my history that I just didn't know a lot about. And so it's through his books that I really got into the music. And so I went to NYU Film School, and I remember I, I, bought, I bought all the chess compilations. You know, Real Folk Blues and, you know, the Willie Dixon compilations and Muddies and Bop Box. I, I just spent all my money on, on this stuff and just, you know, listened to nothing but that music for you know, most of my college career. And every time I had a break, whether it was a spring break or summer break, I'd get in the car and I'd drive down south. I'd drive to Memphis, I'd drive to Mississippi, I'd drive to New Orleans, I'd drive, I'd drive all these places that Peter was writing about in his books. I wanted to see them. And so I, I really, really became a deep student of this stuff, um, but didn't really gravitate towards playing it myself. When I started writing songs, for me, and this is again, I guess, the, the battle of the marketing head versus the artist head, I felt like, you know, that was the predictable thing to do at the time. You know, I felt like I, I felt like I wanted to be contrarian or be ironic, and and, and, um, and so a lot of the music that I wrote, lyrically, I made a record called Harlem in, uh, in 2000, 2000, and um, and it was a very very pointed, somewhat political record from a very much a black perspective. Uh, and it's sort of a concept record about a family growing, living in the South and moving up to Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. So it took all of my fascination about black American history and black culture and racial identity, and it was, it was like this very heady thing. But, the, but musically, it was like kind of an Americana record. You had banjos on it, and it was, it was kind of twangy. And so I was into this sort of like mashing up of heavy black, maybe centric themes against, you know, non-black music forms, I guess. Mm. And, and, and that was sort of like my thing. You know? and, and, I, and in retrospect, I was probably way overthinking it. <laughs> I was probably way, you know, way too like, you know, sort of like over just, just in my head more than my heart. But that's where I was at the time. And so 
I just never saw myself as a blues player, a blues singer. I played harmonica, but I played harp like, you know, Bob Dylan played harmonica. Or Dylan uh, okay. played harmonica, you know. Hmm. But, um, so then, in 2013, and then I, st- and I made this album, uh, Thank You, Shirley made about my mother, a tribute to my mom. My mom was a singer, and she committed suicide in, in 2003. And so I made a record a couple years later, sort of as a tribute to her, and as a way to sort of, like, you know, grieve about her and, and reconcile that. And it was a really hard record to make, and it was a really, you know, uh, heavy record to listen to. And I think it sort of like it sort of like did me in for a while, and so I just stopped making music for a long time. And then in, in 2013, a good buddy of mine, uh, who was, I was in the band with a long time ago, he called me up out of the blue and said, "Look, I, you know, I'm going to Italy. I got some gigs over there. Uh, a guy who I know in Italy, promoter, really loves blues music, and he wants me to put a blues band together. And I think you should be our singer." And I was like, "What?" And uh, he's like, "Yeah, and you know this music more than anyone else I know. You know, put whatever set list you want together, sing whatever you want to sing, and, and come on over." And and that was it. And I'm like, wow, okay. And so I went over there and I put the associate of all these songs that I always loved but never thought about singing. And and we had these packed houses. And I just, I tell people, it was, it was the lightning bulb moment for me, Lou, you know, where, where I just, yeah. like, I, I was standing there and I felt all of this history coming through my body. And I felt like my mother. And I felt Solomon Burke, who I'd known forever and who was a huge mentor to me. And I you know, did albums with him. And I felt, you know, the, the artist who my father had worked with, the artist who my father had worked with over the years. I just felt all of my personal past and my racial past sort of come into me. And, and I tapped. And I, be, I was, like, becoming in real time like a different kind of singer and a different kind of performer. And I was always a very kind of, you know, shoegazer kind of performer. And I was doing my own sort of singer-songwriter stuff. And these crowds were looking at me. And they were just sort of seeing me as something other than what anyone had seen me before. Because to them, they didn't know who I was. They thought I was, you know, they thought I was the Reverend John Amos. <laughs> and, so, and they're the ones who called me that. I mean, after the game, uh, like, you were like a Reverend, a Reverend John Amos. And so they, 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 they gave me that name. And so by the end of it, I was literally transformed. I mean, literally like, oh, my God, I found myself. I found my voice. I found my, 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 my purpose. And uh, I just I came back to the stage. And I said, that's it. Like, why would I sing anything else? Why would I make any other kind of music? It, it, it's so simple. It's so much complicated than how I made it. And it's coming from a place of joy, you know, which is so ironic because it's the blues. No one thinks about the blues as being, you know, the sad music. But, you know, it, 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 it is like from a pure place of joy and triumph, you know, I've sort of come through all the things I've come through and be at this place. And so, I said, if I want to call myself a reverend, i got to really be a reverend. <laughs> so I you know, <laughs> went to Universal Life Church, and I just I spent a year from, before we made the EP, I just spent a year woodshedding. I booked a, I booked a residency at a small little room in Los Angeles. They let, they let me be there. I, I, we played for three nights a week, three hours a night, so you know, nine hours a week for a year. And I didn't tell anybody. But this is, again, the artist marketing thing. I'm, like, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to tell anyone about this. I'm going to think I'm going to market it. I'm not going to think about anything other than just Learning how to do this, just learning how to how to, how to uh, honor this craft, and I just and we just played, you know, over a hundred shows, without ever sort of you know making a record or telling anyone about it. And so by the time we made that EP, you know, we had a year under our belt, and you know, playing a lot of shows. And I felt like I'd really, you know, found my voice as, as, a, as a blues player, blues singer. And then and then you know, here I am talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had this sort of like, so you had like what people call it, like an epiphany or a sort of uh, come to Jesus moment and yeah. uh, where it sort of just all came together. This has been floating around in your life 
and then you get you get asked to do this thing in Italy of all places. <laughs> no, it's crazy. Well, wasn't, this wasn't Shreveport. That's <laughs> <laughs> a long way from Italy to Shreveport. <laughs> okay, so all right, so you have a lot, and I watched uh, you know some other interviews and um, uh, videos with you, and I think you have a lot to say about the state of blues. And um, so, can you talk a little bit about the blues scene today, and maybe what you would like to see happen, or how you feel about yeah. it? Yeah. Look, I, 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 I say this, I, I've written a bit about this, um, and, I, and, I, and so I wrote a piece about, a, I, I blog uh, for, for Yahoo Music, um, and I wrote a piece on Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, on the anniversary of his death, and I, I still get, you know, probably a couple comments a week from people about this thing I wrote that sort of some folks misread and became a little bit controversial, but yeah, I, I feel that I came into this sort of the conventional wisdom that a lot of people have, which is, oh, the blues is dying, right? And, and, and this, this music's on the verge of being a past tense, right? B.B. You know, King died, and Eric Clapton's on Facebook saying this music's on the verge of being in the past tense. You know, I heard Buddy Guy in NPR a few weeks ago talking about how he's worried about the future of this music. And so I, I, I was one to buy into that kind of wisdom. But I, I'm convinced now it's, it's not about the blues dying as well as much as it is about the blues needing a – a, a brand refresh. <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I think I think I think that the blues, like I said earlier, you know, this community is so amazing. It's blues community, but it's very insular. And I think that you've got these blues uh, societies um, and, and blues foundations and and all these sort of you know uh, you know groups, these support groups that exist all over the country, all over the world. And right. people are, are dedicated to supporting one another in, 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 in the station, radio stations and whatnot. But it's, it's, it's a small community, right? And so I think when you're in that community, you think there's no problem with the blues at all. Look how many people are playing the blues. Many people are keeping, look how many people are, are, are taking it on. Look at these, you know, people come out to the shows and support it, and, and, and there's blogs everywhere. But it, it, it is insular. If you, if you take that community and sort of juxtapose it up against what's happening in the larger musical world, no one's thinking about the blues. Virtually no one is thinking about the blues. And the way they think about pop music or hip-hop music or country music or other genres of music. So I get that about why. I think if it's dying, it's because it doesn't occupy you know, a large part of people's mind share. You can't go out mm-hmm. to a club or in an elevator or turn on a radio commercial or TV commercial. You don't hear this music anymore. You just don't hear it unless you are part of that little circle and, and, and you seek it out. And, and I think for it to survive and thrive, the blues needs to come into places where it currently has not been invited. And I don't think it'll get invited into those places. And I don't think that people will think about, uh, I don't think people will consider the blues as maybe a genre unless it sort of has something about it. I'm not talking about the music itself, but the way it's marketed and the way it's presented, something that feels current and on par with how other things are presented and marketed in this 21st day and age. And, and, and so I think that blues musicians and blues uh, people in the blues community need to get uh, need to um, do a better job at how they communicate and talk and market themselves and think about doing it and how they do it to the non-believers versus the believers. Because so I think every conversation we have that, that takes place within the blues community is just sort of talking within a closed circle. Um, and if I have a person who lives in New York City, who's a Brooklyn hipster, who isn't thinking about blues at all, you know, and I go to, you know, the Blues Foundation website or I go to any other kind of, you know, sort of blues bars or look at the blues artist fan, you know, fan page, it doesn't look and feel like most music stuff looks and feels and from a presentation standpoint. Does that make sense? Right. 
And so I, I, so I, I, I think we got to, like, you know, again, that artist marketing thing, I, I think there's a lot of blues artists out there. And, I, you know, I got some quibbling about, you know, you know, I said earlier, I think, you know, a lot of blues music has been associated with, like, guitar hero music, you know, guitar slinger music. And that's, you know, not entirely my thing. But I think, I think you, know, you know, the artistry of the blues, I think, is alive and well. Uh, I think the marketing of the blues needs a lot of help. Do you see yourself as maybe a champion uh, in that in that uh, in that aspect of it, with given your given your uh, your background with everything else you've done? I mean, you see, you seem to me you're so you're obviously widely passionate about this. We're not going to get to talk about anything else today because I can tell. <laughs> but 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 what I'm saying is you're so passionate about this. And you have a lot of great ideas, and you have this other, this sort of like other background. Do you see yourself as maybe somebody? I don't mean to put you on the spot, who maybe could start to steer this thing towards, well, you know, getting more mainstream acceptance or understanding. Uh, you know, if, if anyone, I, I'm happy to put myself of service to anyone who wants to be of service. But I, I'm not, you know, um, you know, this is this is emotional territory you know, for for, for okay. a, a lot of, a, a lot of people. And so I, right. I'm not, you know, I, I think that. Uh, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not here to like tell anyone how to do their business, but I, I, I am. I, I have a strong opinion about it, and I think it comes from. Yeah, I mean, you know, being around a lot of different circles and a lot of different scenes. You know, some music related and some non-music related, but all about how you sort of, you know, create you know, a market for something. And I think that you know, if if people are serious about, you know, the blues having a larger market share and are serious about the blues being more relevant to more people. And certainly the, the base level, just the history of this stuff being passed along you know, and history not being lost, then I think that we got to look at you know, things a little differently. And I think, uh, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I have a viewpoint and other viewpoints out there. I think we need some kind of coalition, honestly. I think there's you know, people from different sort of areas of this business, from the marketing side and the club owner side and the promoter side and the management side and the label side and, and certainly some you know, key artists. But I think, I think you know, uh, a number of influencers – need to come together and, and, and sort of collectively agree that, A, there's a problem. <laughs> and the problem isn't just isn't the music, but the, but the marketing of the music. And, and, and all agree on how to sort of move forward in a, in a coordinated way. I think, I think that's possible. I'd love to be part of that conversation for sure. Um, what – so, okay, we'll get uh... – I, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, <laughs> let's no, talk about cool. <laughs> let's no, talk no. about kitchen let's talk about kitchen table blows. Yeah. Now, what is Kitchen Table Blues? Tell, tell everybody what that's all about. So every Sunday on YouTube, uh, we uh, uh, post a, 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 a – well, let me back up. So we, every Sunday on YouTube, we post a performance uh, of, of, of a song play, being played acoustically uh, in my kitchen. Uh, and there are covers of old blues tunes I dig, and they're, and they're originals as well. Uh, the, and and that, that video comes about because on Sundays, I invite folks to my house, and I make brunch, and we hang out. And then we play some music. And it did something I started. Uh, I, I have this ritual where I go to the farmer's market in my neighborhood every Sunday. And so I'm, I'm a big farmer's market sort of fan, and I like cooking. And so, um, you know, I always invite people over to the house for brunch and, and cook. And then and I, and I love that sort of gathering. It's a lot about what I like about the blues and, and entertaining people, you know, entertaining people through food, entertaining people, you know, through music. And, you know, there was a period where I wasn't playing a lot outside of L.A. I still don't play a lot outside of L.A. It's really one of the big goals in the next you know, coming months and certainly into next year is to get out on the road more and play in other places. But I, I was sort of faced with the, the question, of like, how do I bring people to the music if I can't get to them, you know, um, on a regular basis? And I was getting tired of, you know, Facebook posts that just said, here's a gig I'm playing in L.A. and you can't get to it because you live in, 
you know, Duluth. <laughs> uh, and so, um, so I was like, how, how can I just, you know, post something that is going to be of value to people and can also share with them, you know, what I'm about uh, and sort of create a little bit of a community until I'm able to get to them and create a physical community in, in the club. And so I thought, well, God, if we're having these brunches every Sunday anyway and we're playing some music, let's just get a camera guy over and film it. And so, and not, and not anything thought out or produced. It's literally, it's like one camera set up. There's no edits. You know, you see my kids walking back and forth. You see my dog walking around. It is very, <laughs> it, it is very lo-fi. And, um, and, that, and that's because, you know, I don't want it to be a thought out, you know, old, old deal. I just sort of, you know, it, it, and I think in, people sort of caught on to it. It's, it. Particularly the last few weeks, it's some, something's happened. It's just like sort of hit Tater. We've got, there's a song up there, Days of, actually Days, Days of Depression from the album. We do a Kitchen People Blues version of that. It's, you know, close to like 20,000 views on, um, on YouTube. And, uh, and I'm getting lots of you know, emails every day from folks who are just loving these things. And I think that, you know, a lot of what I get from folks is sort of the same thing we've been saying is like, People are just really psyched to have this type, this strain of blues sort of be put in front of them again because a lot of what they're seeing with blues is sort of maybe a little slicker or it's very guitar, you know, solo-based. Um, and, and they're psyched, to, they're happy to sort of see this other side of blues, which they remember fondly or maybe they didn't know as well before they dig it. And so um, it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And my goal is hopefully we can sort of take them on the road and sort of do kitchen table blues in other people's kitchens yeah, at some point. But for now, it's my kitchen. Well, it's a, it's, it's a really neat uh, and, uh, uh, video series. Um, very fascinating. And uh, Sean does not – you're not even singing into a microphone, right? You're just singing nope. in There's ambient light. Nothing yeah. in my – I think we plug in my guitar player's uh, guitar, so we have a little bit of flexibility on that. But, and, and there's one mic overhead that's just out of the shot of the camera. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, and that's it. And we do a take, and whatever it is, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, so there. You know that that's great. Thanks for like describing it because like I was going like, is this a, like a studio set somewhere? It's and that's actually your it's actually your that's, kitchen. That's my kitchen. That's my kitchen. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. authenticity. Very cool. So yeah. what is so what is next? So what's the record coming out here on the what is it sixteenth? October sixteenth comes out. Oh. We're gonna do a couple of dates uh, in New York, uh, and then do some other media in, in New York on the on the week of release. Um, and we're planning some fall dates uh, throughout California. Uh, we may do a few dates in Texas, and then, uh, you know, we'll see what happens after that. But, I mean, you know, the, the, the goal is, what's next is, is to get out on the road. I, I really, really, really want to get out on the road. And we, we, you know, the show is where it comes alive, and I'm, I love the album. I think the album is somewhat representative of the show, but, you know, there's some live footage of me out there around, and you know, people, everyone who's come to our show is just really um, – you know, is struck, and I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of testifying going on, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, just, you know, all, all the sort of spirits that I felt in Italy, you know, the only way I sort of, you know, get in touch with them on a regular basis is being on stage. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so so we, we want to play as much as we can play, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll uh, have a chance to do that as we get towards the end of this year and certainly into next year. Well, um, I uh, I hope that you guys do uh, get get a good touring schedule going because uh, for, well, just just as an aside here, Pittsburgh is a very big blues town, and right uh, yeah, they would they would eat this up. <laughs> well, we're, we're coming. We're on our way. It's good stuff. Okay, hold is there anything? Hold on for us. <laughs> we are. Um, well, hey, Sean, it was really. Is there anything else you want to mention before we uh, roll out of here? Do you want to plug anything else? You want to mention oh anything God. else? You- You've been very generous, man. Thank you. No, I, I, look, I, I hope folks will uh, 
you know, check out the album and, and, uh, and get it on iTunes. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll check out the Kitchen Table Blues things. They're up every Sunday morning, 7 a.m. Pacific. We post those things every Sunday. And, um, and, and just, uh, you know, I, I, I really, I'm grateful for the forum. Man. I'm grateful for you giving me some time. Um, so, guys, you can uh, check out – I'll just throw the links out there one more time at everybody. That is uh, SeanAmos.com or Facebook, Reverend Sean Amos. And uh, you can find him on Twitter, Sean Amos. And then the, if you want to go to – probably the easiest thing to do for YouTube is uh, just type in the, in the search Sean Amos or just in the uh, – the the kitchen table blues because that's not going to be you know there's not going to be twenty other people in kitchen table blues. And it's something you guys have to see. You definitely want to check that out. It's really neat. So go on there, watch that, tell all your friends, and comment on it because uh, it's uh, very cool. Sean, thanks a lot, man. It was so uh, good talk to you. If you could hang on one second, I'm going to end the recording, then I'm going to ask you one more thing off the record here. All right? You got, it. you got. It. Thanks, man. Sure. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.